I'm a fag and I'm proud. For a quarter, this was my first ever paid performance. It came on the commission of my uncle, who would oftentimes invite me into spaces to publicly perform to much an uproarious response. The situation would be like this. There'd be a family gathering for any reason, funeral, family reunion, happy or sad. And my uncle would say, tell the world about yourself. And I would walk into a space, find the center energy in the room, put myself directly in there, and I would put my hips to one side and take my hand and put it in the other hip and then throw my right hand down and drop my wrists as if it were lightless. And I would say, sometimes gathering the audience attention, <clears throat> I'm a fag and I'm proud. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. This is part one of a two-part episode that we'll be releasing on the occasion of World Pride Month. You were just listening to Sheldon Scott reading I'm a Fag and I'm Proud, originally performed at the Untitled Art Fair in Miami Beach in December 2018. We'll be hearing more from Sheldon and a bit more about this performance later on in the episode. But first, we're going to talk about a group of artists featured in two exhibitions concurrently on view in New York City, including Diane Arbus, Laura Aguilar, Adam Ralston, Louise Bourgeois, Naylin Blake, Judith Baca, Ellen Shumsky, Judy Chicago, Maxine Fine, Lola Flash, Thomas Lanigan Schmidt. These are just some of the names of the artists and collectives featured in Art After Stonewall 1969 to 1989, an exhibition on view in New York this summer, timed with the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, also known as the Stonewall Uprising, which began on the morning of June 28, 1969, when New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn, a mafia-run gay bar on Christopher Street. Among the patrons who refused to be arrested quietly were the activists Marsha P. Johnson and the artist Thomas Lanigan Schmidt. The confrontation spilled out into the street in protests and violent clashes. Others joined in and the riots continued for days, marking an iconic turning point in queer civil rights. This exhibition examines the impact on visual culture of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer liberation movement sparked 50 years ago. I was fortunate to meet down on Wooster Street in Soho, New York, just a short walk away from the Stonewall Inn, to meet with two of the curators of the exhibition. I'm Drew Sawyer. I'm the Philip Leonian and Edith Rosenbaum Leonian Curator of Photography at the Brooklyn Museum, formerly Curator of Photography at the Columbus Museum of Art. 
I'm Jonathan Weinberg. I'm the curator of the Marie Sendak Foundation and a painter, an independent curator. So the, the key thing is that this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which of course happened uh, at the night of January, uh, June 28th in New York at the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay bar. And that was this moment in which the patrons were interrupted by the police who were doing a raid. And they suddenly decided that they weren't going to go along with the usual thing. In those days, what you would normally do is you'd sort of line up and the police might arrest one or two people and then maybe they'd let you go and then they'd close the bar down and then the bar would pay them off. But the patrons decided, no, we're not going to put up with that. And that began this riot, which is such a turning point. As many people know, New York City, because it's the 50th anniversary, is the site for world pride, LGBTQ pride. As we entered the exhibition, we stood in front of a large wraparound mural, which was made of collaged elements pulling from archival photographs from the 1960s. The mural is, is actually a large blow-up photograph of a mural that was in the Gay Activist Alliance building. And it was 40 feet. It was this huge montage collage mural. And that building was burnt down. And they never discovered who burnt it down in 1974, which was you know, not that long after the initial Stonewall and not that long after the Gay Activist Alliance sort of created this firehouse place. It was a community place. It was a place where people danced again and came together and organized, and somebody set it on fire. And this mural celebrates not just gay pride, but it makes this connection to other civil rights movements. So one of the key figures in it is Huey Newton, who was straight, Mm -hmm. but actually was a big supporter of gay rights and said, well, basically the notion that you're not free unless... We were all free, which was one of the things that people said at the time and believed, really, that gay rights was part of a larger civil rights movement, feminist rights, women's rights. We moved on from the mural into the first gallery to view a small sculpture made with household materials placed within a vitrine on a pedestal. One of the amazing things about Stonewall is that Tommy Lanigan Schmidt and Martha Johnson, these are two really key people who were at Stonewall, both in their own ways are artists. Tommy Lennigan Schmidt is a visual artist, a sculptor, and a writer, and just an amazing figure, and was there at the moment. And he's also in this photograph by Fred McDara, which is also in the mural. Tommy talks about how, for him, what Stonewall was about, two things he talks about. He says what Stonewall is about was about dancing together and just wanting to be able to dance together and the police wouldn't let us, right? That's all we wanted to do and they rage against that. And then the other thing he says is that it, when he's asked to remember it, he says it smelled like lighter fluid. So I always think that's very evocative. The other point that Tommy makes is that in some of the some of the representations long after the fact of gay liberation, it often gives the idea that that what the face of liberation is sort of middle-class white guys, right? But the people who really fought in the, the front lines were people of color, were transgender, were people of working class, and that's something that he really wants to get that message across. Mm-hmm. It's different from some of the media imagery that, that we see, right? One of his sculptures is called Allegory of the Stonewall Riots, based on the Statue of Liberty, fighting for drag queen husband and home, as a long title. 
And the amazing thing about his pieces is that they're made out of tinfoil and collage, and he takes things which you can find in your house, and he magically remakes them and turns them into a chalice, or he turns them into a little sculpture, and he does that uh, like an alchemist. To me, that is very true to what the whole spirit of LGBTQ world is like, which is that you are given a kind of difficult, bad situation, and you turn it into something beautiful and magical. You know, that's really what these people were doing at the time. So this piece, just for our listeners, is made out of foil, plastic wrap, pipe cleaners, linoleum, glitter, floor shine, food coloring, staples, wire, magic marker. These are really objects that you can find in most houses, yeah. right? Yeah. It's worth noting there's two additional sculptures that are at the gray. So some of the works that we'll see here Artists have other works at the second location. But we really wanted Tommy to be in both places. He was, he was actually at Stonewall, which is kind of great. One of the other s- things to point out, particularly if you're not from New York, is that there were other riots, right, that occurred in the 60s. It's not as if gay liberation began in 1969. But one of the reasons that made Stonewall so important, and Drew mentioned this a little bit, is that the decision to turn it into an anniversary, to have a march, to make images about it, to represent it. So artists really were crucial in that. So the fact that we remember Stonewall so much in a certain way, or we make it into an image, turns it into a turning point and therefore it becomes a kind of rallying cry for the movement. Right. And I mean, we can talk about the Peter Hujar image, which shows a sort of crowd of young individuals running through what looks like downtown street in New York City in 1970, which then became the image for the poster Come Out that the Gay Liberation Front did in 1970, one year after the Stonewall riots. So mm-hmm. again, Peter Hujar, a well-known photographer of the 1970s and, and 1980s, was like many other artists in the show, integral to visualizing the idea of coming out, but also memorializing the Stonewall riots mm-hmm. in the years following the event. So one thing that's interesting to me about this image, as opposed to, for example, the image of the riots that we were just looking mm-hmm. at, or even imagining the night of Stonewall, you know, this mm-hmm. night of likely a lot of anger and, and fear and terror, and then this image is, is really one of pure joy. I think that's a great point, because all through the show you see people having a lot of fun, and there is joy, even in the face of the most terrible situation, even later in the Grey Archive, the whole section on AIDS, mm-hmm. there's a great deal of anger, but often humor used, employed as part of that politics. And I think they want it to be appealing to people. They want to grab their attention, to make them feel like they're taking over the streets and taking over the city, and that this is a wonderful thing and not a scary thing. Because for a lot of people, coming out was a scary thing, and it depends on your privilege. And one of the things that that we point out in the label here is that as wonderful as this image is, it's young white people who in some ways, you know, they look like hippies. I don't know how much money they have and everything, so I'm not going to talk about necessarily that aspect of it. But I have talked to people who are involved in that, and they were aware at the time that they wanted to be more diverse, and they they tried to get some African-Americans to be part of it, but the people who were involved at that time felt it was too risky to come out. And there can be an enormous difference between 
people's situation and what's at risk. Some people have to come out because they just, they can't pass, right? Just the way they act or the way people see them. Those are the type of people often are most bullied, right? And then other people have that ability to hide in plain view, as it were. So this first section is meant to be very much about this idea of coming out and visibility. On this topic, we'll return briefly to the remainder of Sheldon's radio performance, which you heard at the very beginning of this episode. And it took me to a space, a space I often did not occupy as a gender non-conforming young man between the ages of five to seven. It put me in the space of positive attention, something I rarely got. But when I did this, all eyes were on me and all eyes were smiling. I was too young to discern the difference between laughing with or laughing at. But regardless, I appreciated the laughter. And I also appreciated the benefit of a quarter. Very small transaction, but to someone my age, a quarter was quite a bit of money. That was a pack of now and laters back in my day. And I loved pineapple now and laters. And this transaction went on for years. My uncle would commission me regularly. Then one day, the commission changed. This time, he offered me a whole dollar. Now a dollar. That's two packs of now and laters. One of those little jugs of blue drink and a blow pop. I was rich. You see, I was too young to understand the economics of greater risk, greater return. All I saw was that I was going to get a dollar. So again, at my uncle's request, I went in into my mother's living room where she'd been sitting with some friends. And like I normally do, planted myself in the center of the room, gave presents to my body, my back went straight. This pride overtook me. And I said, I'm a fag and I'm proud. But this time was different. No one laughed. No one cracked a smile. No one even looked at me except for my mother. And when I finally caught her eye confused at the response, I knew that something was wrong. See, what had happened was my uncle had raised the stakes. This was not just my mother and some friends, this was the new pastor and his wife. And for the first time I realized that being a fag, being proud, both, or separately was no longer acceptable. That night while I was asleep, I was awoken by the stinging pain of an extension cord going across my back. My mother had came in the room one night, that night, and started to beat me. 
started to beat the fag or the pride out of me. I don't know which one. But up until that point, and even to this day, it was the first and only gay bashing I've ever experienced came at the hands of my own mother. That set the tone for the rest of my life at that point. From seven on, I realized that being a fag or being proud was not an option for me. The attention that I had once enjoyed, come to realize that that attention was based on me being less of myself instead of more of myself. Sheldon presented this topic as a part of his performance, I'm a Fag and I'm Proud, live from the Untitled Art Fair in Miami Beach last year. With that, we return to the conversation about coming out with Jonathan Weinberg and Drew Sawyer inside of the exhibition, Art After Stonewall. In the essay, I talk a lot about what comes along with the idea of coming out, right, is, is making oneself visible, but also one's community. However problematic, as Jonathan was saying, mm-hmm. this idea of community, especially when today we think of LGBTQ+, right, there's so many components in that that are contradictory or in conflict with each other, and certainly many of the artists, as Jonathan said, were aware of those. There's also uh, something which I think is really important, which uh, Drew also talks about, which is this idea of visibility, right? Is making things visible. One of the things that makes this whole show different from a lot of other ways of th- seeing earlier gay art interpretations is a lot of that has focuses sort of on the idea of repression or secret codes. So certain works of art by earlier artists may have a gay subtext. And the idea of the artist story and the critic is to figure that out. But in so many works here, that's the exact opposite. They're showing you something. They're making things visible. And that's, of course, what coming out is supposed to be about. And that is supposed to encourage other people to come out. And you can come out not just as a gay person. You can come out as somebody who's a friend of a gay person or the mother of a gay person or father of a gay person. And then the whole society, everybody's coming out. At this point, we walked over to an edition of a poster by Keith Haring. So this is for National Coming Out Day, which was happening in 1988, October 11th. And it's a poster that, at least when I remember seeing it, you would see on college campuses in particular. So there would be a day, a year, where different gay groups would really focus on trying to get people to come out and make it a particular day. And by this point, 1988, people are there saying come out of the closet, come on. And then you mentioned Joy, because it's this funny little yellow figure, sort of looks naked, but he doesn't, can't see any genitals or anything. So it's a kind of non-gendered figure, right? And it's coming out of the door, and there are these little marks that make it seem like it's a dance, and it's all kind of happy, like it's a joyous right. thing. It's an easy... In a bright, multicolored room. Right, and it's all in the kind of cartoonish Keith Haring yeah. way. From Keith Haring's widely reproduced Coming Out Day poster, we moved down to a portrait that called out to us from across the gallery. Okay, so we're, I'm standing in front of a painting of a person with long, dark hair in a white blouse, and they have this very intense stare. They're looking straight at me. And this is a painting by Alice Neal called Portrait of Kate Millett from 1970. So what's so exciting is Kate Millett, of course, is the author of this uh, groundbreaking bestseller book on sexual 
politics. This image was on the cover of Time magazine, and it was the woman's lib issue, right? And as it turns out, that Kate Millett was very ambivalent about that. She didn't really want to be on the cover. She said, I didn't want to represent all of women's lib, but nevertheless, that's how time works. And Alice Neal is one of the great portrait artists of the 20th century, normally paints directly from, it doesn't like to paint from photographs, but this is one of the few examples where she did a portrait from a photograph. And she's really getting across that idea of strength of Kate Millett as somebody who speaks for, you know, a kind of authority and anger, too. And, I mean, it's worth mentioning that this was on view at the National Portrait Gallery, where it belongs. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that we were also able to to borrow this, because they had to take it off view from their galleries Mm -hmm. for the show and the tour, which is special. Wonderful. But did you want to mention the, oh, the yes. work? Because many people, as, as you've talked about, maybe aren't aware that Kate Millett was also an artist. They know yes. her writing. But. It's one of the things that I think is astounding and speaks to prejudice in some ways against women artists, or the way women artists are marginalized, is that here you have such a famous figure in the history of feminism who was a practicing artist, or much of her last part of her career is just focusing on art making. She always continued to write. We have this major sculpture by her that hasn't been shown for almost 25 years. It's called Approaching Futility. The original idea of the, and let me describe the work, it looks like a little jail cell made out of wood and in the middle is a ladder, and on the ladder is a figure climbing up the ladder and kind of looking above, trying to perhaps escaping or at least looking over the bars. I think it's important to note this is human size, so it's not something miniature, it's something that I can really imagine. If I was a person trapped inside of this cell, it would be quite claustrophobic. And it barely fits in the gallery, it's so large. It almost nicks the ceiling of Leslie Lohman. Right. It was the original inspiration for the work was this terrible story of a a woman named Sylvia Likens who was trapped in a house and was just brutally treated. And it was a story that haunted Kate Millett as a kind of metaphor or allegory, I guess, allegory of, of the way women in general are treated. But I also love the piece in terms of the message of the overall show because it kind of speaks how even when you're in prison, right, you can see through the bars. That's sort of, to me, the notion. Even if you can escape, you can imagine what your escape is like. Liberation doesn't happen all at once. It takes a very long time and we're not actually free there's another great photograph in the show that has a poster that says none of us are free until we're all free right and that's always going to be something that is hard to accomplish right it's always an ongoing process just another notion i think is really important is that the idea of coming out of the closet is not something you just do once it's a process you may have to repeat it your whole life you know every time i talk on the phone and talk to the cable company and mention my husband, I'm coming out to the person in the cable company, right? So I think that's another aspect of it. It's not a binary situation, right? So you, you can be in your own prison even when you're outside of jail. As we continue to talk about what it means and what it meant to come out, Drew and Jonathan walked me over to view a poster for a 1978 exhibition titled The Lesbian Art Show. The poster, which was drawn by Amy Silman, featured the names of other artists in the show, including Harmony Hammond, Louise Fishman, Maxine Fine, among others. The artists who participated in this show were in some way consenting to be identified not only as out, 
but also part of a group or community identifying as gay artists. Even now that there are many artists who are ambivalent about being known as a LGBTQ artists, that they'll talk about not wanting to be categorized. And, and this, of course, is a big issue in feminism and other, other groups. That's often something that comes up in panel discussions, you know, not wanting to be in a particular category. And it can be very limiting. One of the artists is a fantastic artist in the show, Barkley Hendricks. He's in the Gray Gallery Party. He's a black artist. And he mentioned telling me um, several years ago when I was doing a different show in a different context on photography that he had never been in a group show with major artists that wasn't a black artist show. That He's an incredibly famous artist, but always put in black artist show, not in a show about the relationship of photography to painting. And my guess is this is probably the first time his work has been put in a queer show. And this is a really important idea. He's straight identified, right? But the work is two guys uh, walking hand to hand who he saw on the street, and he thought, wow, that's great. I'm going to make that into a painting, right? And so there are several works in the show by straight identified artists, but where the theme relates to gay themes. Right, and sometimes they're sort of borrowing from subcultures in a way I'm sure we could name many contemporary artists working today that, and people might use the word appropriation, cultural appropriation, but in these cases, artists were pulling from an emerging iconography within certain subculture within their own images, sort of similarly pushing back against sort of normative culture. So mm-hmm. we have work by Adrian Piper. And Vito Acconci. Vito Acconci. Linda Bangles. Yeah. Robert Morris. I was actually interested in the Vito Acconci works because when I saw his name on the list, I thought, huh, interesting. Is that here? Yeah, Can we talk good. about those? Oh, that's good. That's a video, too. So this is a, a video that's playing on a monitor. I'll let you guys describe it, but, but it's by Vito Acconci, titled Conversions from 1971. I figured you could talk about it because you could also then plug your, your new book. Oh, oh, am I supposed to plug my new book? Yeah, always. Okay, well, I will, I will say that I interviewed Vito Acconci when I was working on my new book on the peers. I have a new book called Peer Groups, and Vito Acconci's... May I stop you, peers with an I, or...? I, it's a pun. Yeah. So peer has in the peers out in the water, but it's called Peer Groups to pun on that idea. And Vito Acconci has done just amazing projects. One of the pieces that I was interviewing him about was this piece that he did in the abandoned piers along the waterfront and on Pier 17 where he would meet people out at one in the morning and would whisper some secret to them. If they would meet him in the middle of the night, he would tell them some secret and they could blackmail him with that. So Vito was very interested in sort of, as you would say, crossing lines, normative lines, ideas of guilt, ideas of identity. In this particular piece called Conversions, he's trying to, in an almost violent way, take his body and turn himself into a woman, or at least pull his his skin into breasts or burn his hair. And so it's it's quite a strange video, let's put it that way, like many of much of his work. Yeah. This piece you think of burning of hair and of course you immediately think of what that might smell, smell like, like, this yeah. strong smell. And that uh, brings me to this description you had earlier on that many people who were at the Stonewall riot that night remember the smell of lighter fluid. Mm-hmm. I guess there's sort of a connection there. <laughs> you know, that's a really wonderful point because in a certain way that is something that artists, uh, I think in the late 20th century and on and now, I think young people even now, they want to try to make the experience real, right, and, and visceral. 
From this point, we walked into the next gallery of the Leslie Lohman Museum. You know, obviously, a lot of the work that we've been looking at so far is representational. A lot of it has been photographic, video, mm-hmm. to the sort of thing that we keep returning to, which is about representation and visibility. So obviously, photography and video were a huge part of making the movement visible, making communities visible, making oneself visible. You know, in, in a way, sort of aligns really well to what artists are currently doing now, which I think is also pushing against that idea of making oneself visible and all that comes with that. As Jonathan mentioned before, Mm -hmm. the feeling that one is being put into a category and that one has to perform their identity for an audience and the way in which then images, once they're out in the world, can be used for other purposes and the way that bodies can be used. There was obviously simultaneously, and especially by the 1980s, you really see it once you move over to the Gray Art Gallery, for, which is essentially is 1980s, whereas Leslie Lohman is really 1970s. You see increasingly artists exploring abstraction, but it doesn't mean the work any less political and you know we could relate that to what's going on in the Whitney Biennial right now which obviously many critics have pointed out the degree to which the work is so formal but that doesn't mean that the work is any less political and and most of it actually is and I'm, I'm sure many of the artists would say that their work is deeply invested in the social and political and I think that's true of Lula May Blockton work and a lot of the work that's in the second half of the exhibition, too. One way we tried to get at that was by evoking the writing of Audre Lorde. So she wrote in the the late 70s an amazing essay called The Uses of the Erotic, where she was particularly focusing on, on the sort of power of women, that she felt that women had a kind of connection to a kind of sensuousness, a kind of physicality, which she separated from what she thought was the pornographic, right? It wasn't necessarily genital, but it had a kind of energy, right? We did a tricky thing. We kind of said, well, we believe in that, but we don't think it necessarily is just for women. We think that there are all kinds of ways in which erotic desire finds its way into works of art. And one of those might be through form, through color, through shape. So for example, we have this amazing work by Harmony Hammond, which is looks something like two ladders kind of entwined, and it has a kind of beautiful physicality. The sort of two ladders are leaning up against one another, and the front ladder is a pink color with these ruffles that run along each side. And then behind it, it's leaning up against gray charcoal ladder that's it's mostly hiding, actually. So you have to really sort of walk around to the sides uh, it to see it. It appears that it has sparkles. There's definitely glitter on both surfaces. So again, a sort of return to these readily available materials, yeah. like back with the Tommy Lanigan Schmidt piece from the beginning. So there are all kinds of possible metaphors of ideas of bondage, and it's called duo, and of two people binding together. And then this is also this motif of the ladder of kind of going up, a kind of ecstasy to that, actually. But it's not literal, right? There's also a really interesting piece by Fran Wynette that is of a dog with this secret language that she developed when she was in, a kid, as a matter of fact. But she's very careful to say that she doesn't see this language as some kind of code for a secret gay language, yet at the same time she feels that it does relate 
somehow to her queerness, right? Part of our queerness isn't just who we have sex with and who we love, it's our physical nature, it's the way we form the world on some level. It is and it isn't too, right? It doesn't limit us, right? Um, which is what Drew is trying to, to get at. And I should also say that there's no easy answers to all this, that artists back in the day and now struggle with the way identity relates to their work, right? Is our work always about ourselves? Is our work always, every work a self-portrait? It is and it isn't. I feel that as a painter, I'm not making pictures that are just about me. I hope that they're about you. And if I make a painting that is about my own physical desire, does that limit it? Just like if you're reading a book about miners who go down to the mine and, and dig for coal, is that only supposed to be of interest to people who dig for coal or is their suffering possibly relatable to other forms of suffering that people have? You know, the struggle for freedom is something that many different people share and is relatable. I always feel like the more specific work is, the more universal it is somehow. The more that it comes from experience, the more relatable it is. During our tour of the show, we continued to look at important artworks by Peter Hujar, Diana Davies, and Nancy Freed, among others. The last two artworks we visited together were by Barbara Hammer and Delmas Howe. So included in the exhibition, we have Barbara Hammer's iconic film, Dyke Tactics from 1974, which is sort of this psychedelic montage of women in nature embracing making love, just touching one another. And it sort of goes back to, you know, the, obviously the theme that Jonathan mentioned, which we're in right now, which is uses of the erotic that comes from Audre Lorde. Obviously, you know, Barbara, as you mentioned, became one of the first really out lesbian filmmakers whose work was also about lesbian identity, love, iconography. And I would point out another really important thing which Audre Lorde was, was thinking about, which was how do you uh, make representations of the lesbian body and lesbian desire which is, haven't been sort of commodified by heterosexual men, right? To this day, if you type in lesbian into any search, you just go bombarded by images of, you know, made for street people, right? You're not going to get Barbara Hammer. Or you're not going to get Barbara Hammer, exactly. And that's something that artists like more... We need more... some, uh, like, feminist web hackers <laughs> to <laughs> change that. In relation to dyke tactics and this idea of the bucolic sort of scenario that they're in and this focus on the women... I would love to return to the painting right at the front called Three Graces. I thought this one was interesting, A, because right at the beginning, just the way that the men are presented here and also the jeans as we were talking about jeans. So it's a painting by Delmas Howe um, from 1978 called The Three Graces. And the three graces are, in art historical terms, that would be three women. Um, And so we have three men here. Well, Delmas Howe, who lives south of Albuquerque, and he's actually from the West, and he talks about going to rodeos and being raised by, you know, cowboys and things like that. So he's very self-consciously playing on, on both American themes of masculinity, but then mixing that by taking men and putting them very self-consciously in the poses of women. He's really trying to reverse 
stereotypes. Think about um, the homoerotic in a different way, right? So I think that's absolutely right. The other thing that's really interesting about this painting is that it was on a cover of an art magazine in one of the very first articles about gay art in the 70s by Edward Lucy Smith. So it's a key picture. We've finished this first half of the exhibition at the Leslie Lohman. What's the main difference between the two exhibitions at both venues, and what can the viewer expect to see if they were also to go to the Gray? Well, first of all, of course, the show was meant to actually be one show, so I have to point that and, out. And it will be at the Frost and It will Columbus. be at the Frost and at Columbus. You know, basically that idea of chronology, and then there were certain things, I mean, it's kind of creepy, but almost exactly to the day, a decade later, there is this terrible riot and protest in San Francisco when after the trial of the man who assassinated Harvey Milk, it seemed like the perfect place to sort of start the story up again, right? To make the point that 10 years later, things had changed somewhat, but things were still, and are still really difficult for a lot of LGBTQ people. So that was one way of thinking about it. The other thing which, which comes up and meant a lot to people of an older generation, which are these terms that we have, right? Gay or queer or LGBTQ, right? How, how, how do we come up with these names? The term queer really starts to get used around 1980. So that became a kind of interesting way to start up the next show, which is called Things Are Queer, the first section of that show. And what does that word queer mean? You know, it's a word that originally was derogatory. People were thought to be queer was not a good thing. But what happened is that the people within the movement took that name and celebrated, right? Right, which I would say, as your point, it's sort of, I think, 1980s, obviously, also coinciding with postmodernism, right. so it's questioning of representation. Where I think 70s, you'll, as we were talking, a lot of it's photography, a lot of it's sort of agitprop. It's utilizing representation for very political ends, usually for mm-hmm. documenting protests or getting the word out, putting it on posters. Whereas the 1980s, it's this continual questioning of representation questioning of identity, so where you get queer, which is a much more sort of open-ended category rather than a gay or lesbian or trans, that I think that are, are sort of the, the break between the, the two exhibitions, but obviously in some ways arbitrary too, because there's, there's work from the 80s that are, in this section we already talked about the coming out poster by Keith Haring, which is from 88, but it's in mm-hmm. here, and we've looked at other works too. So that separation, it also bleeds mm-hmm. together in, in both spaces. There's one piece that sort of brings the two themes together that's at, at the gray, which is this closet by Robert Gober. It's a kind of wonderful story too, how it came to be in the show. So it's a piece that, at first, when you look at it, it just looks like a closet. But when you more closely, you look at it. It's a closet without a door, and you see that it's meticulously and beautifully crafted piece, right? It's like a beautifully crafted sculpture. I think one of the great artists of our time, Robert Gober. Anyway, the piece is so beautiful because it brings up all these themes that we're talking about. What does it mean exactly? Is the door open, no door, because everybody's out of the closet? Or is he saying, I think more profoundly, that the closet is a just something that hangs over every person who has been part of this history. It affects the way we think about our lives, and even if we are out, we may have all kinds of doubts and traumas, and we may go back into the closet. Or maybe the closet is a safe space, you know, that we need sometimes, privacy. And I think what makes it even more beautiful in the context of the show and the installation 
is that because it is where the coat closet, or it's, it's sort of like an alcove when, mm-hmm. when it is, usually there's a coat rack that is in this alcove. So I think a lot of people that are familiar with the gray will probably just walk by it because mm-hmm. they think it's the coat closet. And then even people you know, that might not be familiar with Gober's work or that body of work will also sort of walk by it. Um, I like that as a symbol of like today versus 1968, for example, right. like mm-hmm. walking down the street, two men or two women holding hands or showing affection to each other. We just walk by it. Right. It's not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what's really important to focus on in this 50-year mm-hmm. anniversary yeah. and, and all of these images and these artists that have been a part of changing culture and right. society. Well, also the notion of being there in plain sight. It's not hidden, but you don't notice it. That's an interesting an interesting idea. And a theme that the show actually ends on the notion of... Uh, of this famous phrase that people used to shout, or maybe they still shout, is we're here, uh, get used to it, right? So the show ends on that, on that theme. Yeah, well, I hope you can make it um, to both the Leslie Lohman Museum and the Gray before the show closes in the end of July. And to our Miami audience, in September, we'll be at the Frost Museum of Art and later in the year in Columbus, yeah, so when Ohio. when are down for the fairs in December, be sure to stop by the Frost. Yeah. Oh, I- Will it be open in December? Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor to do the show. Thank you. In 2016, President Obama designated the Stonewall Inn as a national monument. And earlier this month, the NYPD released a formal apology for the actions taken by their department in 1969. Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill stated that the actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive. And for that, I apologize. 50 years later, the march continues. I invite everyone tuning into this episode to march with us this week during World Pride. We are stronger together. Out of many, we are one. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. This brings us to the end of the 12th episode of the Untitled Art Podcast, Pride. The exhibition debuts at both the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art and the NYU Gray Art Gallery this summer, and will travel in the fall to the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum. And lucky for our listeners, it will be on view during the 8th edition of Untitled Art Miami Beach this coming December. In 2020, the exhibition will continue to the Columbus Museum of Art, where it will join Drew and Jonathan's co-curator in the exhibition at his host institution, Tyler Kahn. I want to give a special thanks to Jonathan Weinberg and Drew Sawyer for joining me on this episode, as well as to Sheldon Scott for his performance and talk at Untitled Art in December 2018. The full recording of Scott's presentation in Miami Beach is available on untitledartfairs.com as well as soundcloud.com slash untitledartpodcastlive. Additional thanks to Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode and for my team at Untitled Art, including our technical assistant, Sofia Ramirez, who all share in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. And finally, a huge thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance Mile, originally performed at Untitled Art in Miami Beach 2015.
stay tuned for a future episode where I also tour the exhibition Nobody Promised You Tomorrow, Art 50 Years After Stonewall, at the Brooklyn Museum, where I visited with two of the show's curators. Hey, what's up? I'm Lauren Argentina Celaya, and I'm the acting director of public programs here at the museum, and I'm also one of the co-curators of Nobody Promised You Tomorrow. Hi, my name is Lindsay Catherine Harris. I'm the teen programs manager. The exhibition, which is on view through December 8th this year, features contemporary art made by 28 artists who were born after the Stonewall riots, examining the legacy of Stonewall in the rising generation of LGBTQ plus artists. There's 28 artists and collectives represented here, uh, most of which are living and working today in, in Brooklyn or in the New York City area. There's four themes. Would you like to share them, Lindsay? Yeah, so they are revolt, which is where we're standing now. There's uh, heritage, desire, and care networks. And so there's um, multiple works by uh, almost every artist. And for some of those artists, their works in multiple of these themes. We see these themes as kind of like blending together, distinct, but also really um, malleable and blending together. And I think that's also reflective of the queer history that we're representing, as well as living, as well as hoping for within the exhibition. We'll talk about Revolt, an examined work by L.J. Roberts. So this is a work called Stormy at Stonewall, and it is a large-scale 14-piece lightbox piece installation that is paying monument homage to Stormy Delivery, who was a biracial, butch, lesbian living in the East Village, uh, who was at Stonewall, the Stonewall Uprising. For some um, accounts, she was the one who threw the first brick. And we'll explore heritage and listen to audio work included in the exhibition by Linda LaBeja. And this is a track called Urgency, and we urge you to listen to it. But it's a poem that she put out originally in 2015, sadly still relevant, about calling attention to the violence that trans women of color face in their everyday lives and how this is an urgent issue. And it's a call to action for everyone to pay attention to how we need to protect and look out for our trans sisters of color. This is a great example of how in the heritage section, we're thinking not only about 1969 or Mary Jones in the 1800s, but we're also thinking about our community today. We'll discuss the many forms of desire. So desire, um, in this section we were really thinking about not only intimacy, like physical intimacy and romantic partnerships and relationships, but we were also thinking about desire in a more like utopian sense. So we're thinking about how we can envision or imagine or work towards better, more equitable futures for queer and trans communities. And in this section, examine the history and meaning of the use of glitter as a medium. And I feel like for so many, especially like queer and trans people of color, when there's so much oppression, when there's so much that's really like doling our light, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are the ways that like glitter like is still present and still illuminating, is still very much like sparkling and piercing through. It shows up literally in material Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a lot of these works in ways that are like the most amazing <laughs> because it's like some, sometimes it's so subtle you're just like oh what I just caught like what's that and we'll wrap up the tour of the show with a discussion about care networks through the work of Mohammed Fayez and the Poppy Juice Collective as we reflect on how much has changed since Stonewall 50 years ago yeah I think it's really important that we have 
parties, people organizing spaces like mm-hmm. Poppy Juice in the tradition of like just necessity. Like we need spaces to just kick it with each other and dance and have moments of joy. As Lauren was saying, like in many ways it was illegal to be queer or trans, LGBTQ identified visibly, right, within public spaces 50 years ago. Now it is not necessarily illegal, but it's still highly policed, right? There are ways that it's not safe to be visibly queer or trans within even such a progressive city like New York. Or the spaces that are maybe more public, right, don't feel inclusive to everyone. Mm -hmm. That's mainly some of the the kind of um, trajectory, right? So there's always been art and art and creativity as a way to build community, as a way to express ourselves, especially when society is is policing and um, rejecting that expression, that literally expressing self as you know, radical acts of survival have been, you know, integral um, as an artistic act (laughs) in all of this. To end today's episode, I leave you with a quote from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Laura Aguilar. Adam Ralston. Louise Bourgeois. Naylin Blake. Judith Baca. Ellen Shumsky. Judy Chicago. Maxine Fine. Lola Flash. Thomas Lanigan Schmidt. Gay Liberation Front. Lyle Ashton Harris. Group Material. Morgan Gwenwald. Keith Herring. Fayette Hauser. Jeb. Michaela Griffo. Hurtle Latoya Jackson. Marlene McCarty. Glenn Ligon. E.K. Waller. Tim Miller. Carol Newhouse. Frank Moore. Tom Finnon. Robert Maplethorpe. Tava. Marlon Riggs. Alice Neal. Mark Morris Rowe. Andy Warhol. Sylvester. Mark Lita. Adrian Piper. Martin Wong. Taboo. Louise Fishman. Jack Shear. Lenore Chen.